Audible Inc. presents Though the Heavens May Fall Written by Stephen M. Weiss Narrated by Andrew Shapiro Preface This book tells how an invisible man became visible and how that changed the world. Like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, an 18th century English slave was not a spook. He was a bearer of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and he possessed a mind. But he was legally invisible. Slaves were property, bought, sold, leased, mortgaged, and inherited like any other property. And so judges could not perceive them because they were not persons and persons were all judicial eyes could see. Then, as today, only legal persons counted in courtrooms, for only they existed for their own benefits, while legal things existed for the benefit of persons. It was in 1772 that this one invisible man, James Somerset, managed to achieve judicial perceptibility through a lawsuit in London's Court of King's Bench presided over by Lord Mansfield, perhaps the greatest judge the English-speaking world has produced. As a result of Mansfield's judgment, James Somerset shed his legal thinghood and became legally visible. And that was the beginning of the end of slavery. This book's cover reproduces one of the most powerful and, in its time, familiar symbols the world has seen. It was the creation of Charles Darwin's father-in-law, Josiah Wedgwood, and is his engraving of a chained slave on one knee, imploring, Am I not a man and a brother? That the slave was a man appeals to our sense of liberty, for a grown man is presumed to possess what is needed to count as a legal person. That he is a brother appeals to our sense of equality, for our brothers are like us and should be treated as we are treated. Those eight words captured the gist of the legal arguments that carried James Somerset to personhood, and they serve today as a model for how things wrongly designated can attain the personhood to which justice entitles them. The American frontiersman Daniel Boone claimed never once to have been lost in the vast American wilderness, though he admitted having been on occasion bewildered for some time. I claim never to have been completely lost in the wilderness that is 18th century British law, procedure, and history. But I owe a great debt to those on both sides of the Atlantic who so generously pointed the way when, on occasion, I found myself wandering. Above all, I thank Ruth Paley, an historian of the British Parliament, who showed nothing but endless patience with me. Also, the 8th Earl of Mansfield with a special thanks to Lorna Woot at Scone Palace, the crew of the Freedom Schooner Amistad, Professor Mary Bildner, Henry Cohen Esquire, Professor David Brian Davis, Professor Daniel Cocolet, Professor Sally Haddon for informing me about the diary of Henry Marchant at the Rhode Island Historical Society, Professor John Langbean, Professor Sharon O'Connor, Professor James Oldham, Professor Randy Sparks, Jennifer Sperling, who earned my undying gratitude for agreeing to transcribe the ancient faded diary of Henry Marchant, whose penmanship left much to be desired, from microfilm, then did it, 
Dr. Bernie Unti, Professor Jenny Wall, Professor Mark Weinberg, Lord Wilberforce, and the retired Honorable Lord Wolfe, Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, as well as the Boston Athenaeum, with a special thanks to Stephen Z. Zonick, Boston College Law School Library, the Boston University Law School Library, the British Library, the British Museum, the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, the Columbia Law School Library, with a special thanks to Whitney S. Bagnall, the Corporation of London's Record Office, Harvard University's Lamont Library, Harvard University Law School Library, with a special thanks to David Warrington, Harvard University's Widener Library, the Library of Congress, with a special thanks to Claire Feichert, the City of Medford, Massachusetts Library.